The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. I think that she can speak not only to, you know, the Giuliani element of coming down to Georgia, being at these hearings that happened in December in which uh, Giuliani and others were making false claims to Georgia state officials in an effort to persuade them to call a special session of the uh, General Assembly and then, you know, appoint Trump electors. Um, But she also can speak directly to things that, Trump was doing in some of these overt acts that are alleged in the indictment. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, October 25th, 2023. Another morning, another surprise plea deal in Fulton County Superior Court. Jenna Ellis, this time in front of Judge Scott McAfee, pleading out of the Fulton County election interference case. There was a tearful colloquy. There was a letter of apology to the people of Georgia. There is a cooperation agreement of some kind, and there is yet another sentence of probation. Joining me in the virtual jungle studio to talk about it all is Lawfare's Fulton County correspondent, Anna Bauer. We talked about how big a deal Jenna Ellis could be for Fonnie Willis. We talked about how the DA's record is stacking up. We talked about who might be next. And we talked about who's going to hold out and force this whole thing to trial. It's the Lawfare Podcast, October 25th. Please, please me, Jenna Ellis. I want to start with a disclosure, which is that I know only about today's plea. What has come across my phone in the form of news alerts, because I've been at a conference all day. And so I know Jenna Ellis pled out, but I am really in a position to impart no useful information to the general public here. So Anna, what happened? Right. Well, as you know, Ben, Jenna Ellis pleaded out, although it is interesting to me that it sounds like you are on the pled side of the pleaded versus pled debate. I'm on the use whichever feels right at any (laughs) given moment. I consider them synonymous. I, I feel about this issue the way I feel about the Oxford comma which is in the wars over pleaded versus pled, I am a conscientious objector. 
Yeah, I mean, I think I'm a conscientious objector as well, but I'm going to use pleaded to say Jenna Ellis pleaded uh, today in in Fulton County Superior Court. Uh, it was another kind of kind of a surprise. Um, you know, we expected it. I'd heard rumblings last week that there was potentially something in the works there, but uh, it, it came together this morning on the tail end of, of Kenneth Chesbro and Sidney Powell also pleading on the eve of their uh, expected trials. And what happened this morning, Ben, is, is kind of similar to what happened with Sidney Powell and Kenneth Chesbro. Specifically, it's very similar to the Chesbro plea. Uh, Jenna Ellis pleaded to one count. Uh, it was a felony count of aiding and abetting false statements and writings. Uh, and that relates, of course, to, you know, the false statements and writings that uh, folks are accused of making before the Georgia legislature during those uh, Senate hearings that went on in Georgia in December of 2020. In terms of the probation conditions or the conditions of the negotiated plea, again, very similar to Chasbro and Powell, she has to write an apology letter to the citizens of Georgia, which she read during this plea allocution in which Jenna Ellis became very emotional and teary-eyed and, and said that she feels much remorse and had she known what she uh, knows now she would not have represented Trump in his post-election efforts. Um, she also said that, uh, you know, she had relied on attorneys who had much more experience than she did um, and kind of made, you know, these statements that seem to implicate some of the co-conspirators or alleged co-conspirators um, that she was previously alleged to have been in a RICO conspiracy with. So that includes folks like Rudy Giuliani and, and Ray Smith, who was their local counsel down in Georgia. So in terms of other conditions, she has to pay $5,000 of restitution. The recommended sentence, which Judge McAfee accepted, was uh, five months of, uh, or excuse me, five years of probation. And, uh, and then interestingly, Ben, you know, in these other plea hearings, we've heard the uh, prosecution say, you must testify truthfully at all future proceedings. But a little bit different language was used here where they said you must fully cooperate with the prosecution in future proceedings against your you know, co-defendants. And I thought that was really interesting because it was a slight change in language. It went from, you know, testify truthfully to fully cooperate. Uh, and I'm not entirely sure if that has any significance yet because I haven't seen the actual written uh, final disposition of Jenna Ellis's case. So I don't know if potentially, you know, that was just a little bit of a quirk in the in the court officer's language. But it is a it is quite interesting that that language uh, was different. And so I think that gives you a good summary of of what happened. But um, it is, you know, a little bit of a surprise that we saw Ellis coming in today. But at the same time, I, I think you and I both figured last week that we would see some some more pleas coming. So that's it. Yeah, and we've had our eye on her specifically for a plea, uh, in part because she's had so much trouble raising money and Trump is not paying her legal bills. And there is no quicker way to force somebody into the arms of prosecutors than to uh, not pay your co-conspirators legal bills. 
It's like not paying mercenaries. So, all right, let's talk about a few elements of this. The first is what she pled to. It is a felony, but uh, so like Ken Chesborough, she has pleaded to a felony, but it's no jail time. And is it a first offender matter in which it'll get wiped from her record when she uh, finishes her probation? Or is this a, a more durable felony? No, that's right. So she does the a part of the negotiated plea is that she'll get first offender act status. And that effectively means that, you know, there's a withhold of, a, of adjudication. If she uh, completes the conditions of her probation and sentence and kind of stays out of trouble, then effectively her, her conviction will be erased. And she will be able to say in a few years time that she's never been convicted convicted of any, you know, criminal charges and that kind of thing. So uh, it, it is uh, something that, you know, is very desirable for someone, especially who has a, a, a bar admission to watch out for. Jenna Ellis, of course, has already been um, censured by the Colorado State Bar. Uh, she, you know, entered into this stipulated agreement in which she admitted that she made misrepresentations about the 2020 election. And and also, as we've seen with Scott Hall, Sidney Powell, and Kenneth Chesbrough, the prosecution agreed to uh, make a statement that this this is not a crime of moral turpitude, and, and that can have some kind of effect on bar disciplinary proceedings in some states and some jurisdictions. So I think that, you know, for her, this is a very good deal as it has been for the other people who have pleaded out. Uh, we have seen a little bit of progression in the sense that it went from Scott Hall pleading to several misdemeanors to then now we've gotten into this territory where Kenneth Chesbro was the first felony plea. And then also we, we see Jenna Ellis uh, pleading out to a felony. I'm very curious to see going forward if there we've, we're now getting into a, a different kind of wave maybe of deals in which the prosecution makes uh, more significant demands about um, you know whether there will be time served uh, besides just a probationary sentence. So we'll see. Yeah. So I mean, it's a let's come to not who's next because we obviously don't know who's next, but the baskets of defendants remaining who please might reasonably be anticipated from. We'll come to that in a moment. So let's talk about her statement of regret. You mentioned that there was a kind of tearful apology. Uh, I've seen a little bit of social media mockery of uh, her grief and remorse. How do you take it? Do you see this as uh, some kind of an act or, uh, or as a sincere expression of regret at getting caught or as something that we should take more at face value? <laughs> I mean, it's it's really hard to say. I it is very interesting that she chose to make this statement publicly. Uh, you know, sometimes I think a defendant would choose to make that kind of statement 
if they're concerned that maybe the judge wouldn't accept the recommended uh, sentence, you know, by the prosecution. Uh, there are various reasons. But in this case, I, I kind of just wonder if it has more to do with her concerns around her future legal career and uh, and and potential bar ramifications. Although she did have that previous agreement uh, uh, to be censured by the Colorado State Bar, I just kind of have to wonder if uh, maybe there were some concerns um, around the effect that this might have on on her legal career. You know, she's 38 years old. She she's not, you know, like Kenneth Chesbro, who has had a long legal career and and, you know, maybe isn't as concerned about being disbarred uh, because he's at the retirement age. Right. He's in his 60s. Same with Sidney Powell. But I, I you know, I'm not really sure what to make of it because Jenna Ellis, on one hand, has on social media been quite resistant to, uh, you know, she's she's made a lot of statements critical of uh, Fonnie Willis and the prosecution. And, you know, as of like two months ago, she was smiling in her mugshot um, and, and putting putting that mugshot as for as her uh, profile picture on social media. So she's been a little bit defiant. And then this is a totally different kind of. A picture of Jenna Ellis that we got in court today. And so I, I'm not entirely sure what it all means, but it was quite interesting. But I, I'm interested to hear, hear your take on that, Ben. Well, I obviously didn't hear it. And so I'm working off of yours and others' descriptions of it. I will listen to it on the Lawfare No Bull uh, feed where, uh, by the way, you know, you can listen to all of these hearings unfiltered and uncut. Uh, you can subscribe to Lawfare No Bull and uh, listen to Jenna Ellis's plea allocution yourself, as well as, you know, Mr. Scott Hall's and uh, Sidney Powell's excellent Blanche Dubois-like, uh, oh gosh, about her age and her youthful countenance. And uh, Ken Chesborough. So, you know, you can uh, you can do exactly what I'm going to do and listen to this. That's Lawfare No Bull, uh, wherever you get your podcasts. Look, I mean, my sense of Jenna Ellis is that she's been, she was loyal to Trump up until the point that there was an issue about paying her legal bills. And so I'm a little bit cynical about an apparently tearful statement of remorse at the dirty work she did for him. That said, I I don't really know, obviously. And and I do think that these, you know, often what triggers a break and a realization that, oh my God, I'm on the wrong side of of uh, a moral and legal question is actually less important than psychologically than the fact of the break. And so I, you know, I don't know, I guess we'll have to watch over the course of these proceedings, how she comports herself and how credibly and fulsomely she testifies. 
which brings us to the cooperation component of the agreement. Um, I saw that Andrew Weissman uh, tweeted that this was a qualitatively different arrangement than had been reached with Powell and Chesborough because it did involve a full uh, requirement of cooperation and interviews, not just a requirement to testify truthfully when called or if called. I, I take it there was a, as with the others, a Fifth Amendment waiver as to you know, any questions she might be asked. I mean, she's exposing herself to potential federal liability, right? Right. And so you said you weren't sure how substantial that difference was. My sense is that the difference lies in her being obligated to help them behind the scenes, not just to submit a proffer and then testify in a fashion consistent with that proffer. Is that your understanding as well? I think that's right. Uh, I mean, I will say that there was also some language, you know, as this was similar to Chesbro and Powell as well, but you know, there's language in there about also providing additional documents at the request of the prosecution. But that, with that said, it's subject to any lawful we, uh, privileges that were asserted in good faith prior to the entry of the plea. So I, I think that, you know, it's unclear to me uh, what potential documents they might get that they didn't already have. Um, but I do think that it's right that the qualitative difference is the kind of continued cooperation by sitting for additional interviews, uh, sitting for answering additional questions that um, potentially Chesbro and uh, and Scott Hall and, and Sidney Powell are maybe not bound by, although I think you could read uh, the way that their deals are written to maybe also include, you know, just additional cooperation in general as well, because it kind of talks about, you know, future proceedings. It's not just at trial. Right. So and there's a very important distinction here between the Georgia state system and the federal system. Right. So in the federal system, you would typically defer sentencing in a situation like this until after the cooperation was complete. And so you'd basically say, okay, you agree to cooperate and we agree, we, the government agree to submit a 5k one letter describing your cooperation before sentencing. And we we both agree to defer sentencing so that you have an opportunity fully to cooperate and make yourself really, really worth it. And we have the opportunity to benefit from your assistance before we have to describe that assistance for purposes of a substantial assistance letter. And that's a, a really, really powerful tool that the government has to incentivize maximal compliance. And it's also, frankly, to the benefit of the defendant, because you can make yourself super useful in a fashion that really reduces your, uh, you know, makes the government more and more enthusiastic about you and less and less interested in putting you away. And so there's a, um, here, you don't see any of that. You know, there, the sentence is delivered the same day 
And so you kind of have an, ob it's not entirely clear to me what functionally the difference is between an obligation to testify and a waiver of the Fifth Amendment rights, which means they can call you and you've submitted a proffer so they basically know what you're going to testify to. And then that on the one hand versus a an obligation to assist or to cooperate, but without the lever of deferred sentencing. By the way, she's already gotten the benefit, which is that all these charges are dropped and she knows what sentence she's getting for the charge that she pleads to. So it's not clear to me that the difference is as great as Andrew thinks it is for purposes of uh, and would be in the federal system. Right. And I also will say, I, I just think that people are making a lot of what the court officer kind of explained in court versus like, I would want to actually look at the written uh, conditions because I don't think those are available on the docket yet. And for example, the last time when Scott Hall was um, making his plea and during his plea hearing, the court officer kind of changed the language of one of those conditions a little bit when they were being asked or were kind of when Scott Hall was being asked to respond in court, it, whether he understood the conditions. And it was a slight change, but it, it did make it quite uh, different from what I understood that condition to be when I was listening to it. And then when I actually saw the uh, final disposition form. So I, I think that people should be a little bit cautious about kind of making you know, uh, conclusions about what uh, all of this means in terms of the language change before we actually see on the, on that uh, final disposition form what what the actual written language of the case yeah is. that's a wise point it's this is a everybody's working here I think off of an oral statement in in court not off of the written documents and that's a good caution that we should wait to explore the difference to a situation in which we can compare the written language to the written language. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life, what would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that 
is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills. It can help you be the best version of yourself. And it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash lawfare. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And delete me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web, and in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, 
they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. All right, so let's talk about what Jenna Ellis has to offer Fonnie Willis. Jenna Ellis was, as best as I can tell, not a particularly big fish in the Trump post-election uh, uh, legal effort, but she was a kind of spokeswoman for the legal team. Uh, I'm not sure how much actual legal work that she was doing, but she was speaking for the team a lot. And she did seem to be somewhat attached at the hip to Rudy Giuliani. So what do we expect that she knows about uh, if we assume a maximalist, like she knows everything she was involved in? What do we know that she was involved in? Right. Okay. So when you think back to the Fulton County indictment, you know, in building this RICO case, you've got to prove two predicate crimes. And then you also have to prove that each of the conspirators were a part of an enterprise that had a common objective to overturn the results of the election. And they did that through both these predicate crimes and a series of overt acts to further the objective of the conspiracy, which was to unlawfully you know, overturn the results of the 2020 election. Uh, and so we have this mix of both predicate crimes that are alleged and then overt acts furthering the conspiracy that are alleged in the indictment. And Fonnie Willis chose to kind of center it around various different kind of uh, subplots or sub conspiracies that that furthered that uh, overarching objective. So we have the breach of voting systems in Coffee County, and that's kind of Scott Hall and Sidney Powell can speak to that. Then we have the fake electors plot, and Kenneth Chesbro can speak to that. And I think what Jenna Ellis offers is one of these other uh, kind of areas of focus within the indictment which is this effort to pressure state legislatures to overturn the election by appointing Trump electors in states that Biden had actually won and that the electors were going to be electing Joe Biden. Um, and instead, you know, they did things like, for example, in Georgia, came down to Georgia, had these hearings in which false statements were allegedly made about the election. And, and the effort was to try to uh, persuade state officials to call a special session that would then, al then allow them to appoint Trump electors instead of Biden electors. So Jenna Ellis has a lot of knowledge about those efforts, about this pressure campaign on these state officials. In the indictment, it alleges, you know, that she was 
uh, privy to various different meetings with Pennsylvania officials and Arizona officials. And and then, of course, she was involved in the planning of these uh, hearings that were in Georgia. So, you know, she has kind of all of this different involvement. And in some of those meetings in the indictment, Trump is alleged to have been there and himself made uh, false claims to some of these state officials. For example, with I believe it's the Arizona delegation that um, he was on a on a call with. So I think that she can speak not only to, you know, the Giuliani element of coming down to Georgia, being at these hearings that happened in December, in which uh, Giuliani and others were making false claims to Georgia state officials in an effort to persuade them to call a special session of the uh, General Assembly and then, you know, appoint Trump electors. Um, But she also can speak directly to things that, Trump was doing in some of these overt acts that are alleged in the indictment. I also will add as well, you know, I I recall that last year when they uh, when Fulton County prosecutors wanted Jenna Ellis to come in and and testify before the special purpose grand jury, they were also focused on some memos that she wrote. Uh, She wrote a memo to Trump and then she wrote a memo to Jay Sekulow, who was one of the people who was also advising Trump at the time, in which she was, you know, setting out uh, procedures to have Mike Pence potentially block the uh, joint session of Congress on January 6th and, and have you know, Trump elected instead. So she can really, I think, speak to a lot in a way that that is also, you know, I think it's important to mention that Sidney Powell and Ken Chesbrough both have respective issues in terms of their value uh, in Sidney Powell's case. It's because she is in many ways just not a credible witness. She's a little bit cray cray. Yeah, exactly. Um, I was trying to put it more delicately than that, but yes. Um, and and then in Ken Chesbro's case, you know, I think that it's that he didn't quite have the access directly to Trump um, or even to some of these other people like Giuliani. You know, yes, right. he's, he's, in- he's writing memos, emailing the mm-hmm. inner circle, but he's not actually right. in the meetings. He's not there. He's yes. a nerdy guy from Wisconsin. Yeah, he's a nerdy guy from Wisconsin who is more kind of in the clouds, like thinking about legal, like kind of, you know, unlawful legal theories, um, as opposed to Jenna Ellis is in the room. You know, she's hanging around with Giuliani all the time. She um, is someone who just has a lot of that knowledge and then also potentially would be a more credible witness than someone like Sidney Powell. Yeah, I think there's another factor that makes what you're saying important, which is that, you know, if you think about these interactions with state legislators, right, and you think about the way it presents in court where the witnesses, say Rusty Bowers or or those guys from Michigan, the witnesses say, you know, okay, we had a meeting in which they pressured us. And then on the other side of that are the defendants who are the ones being accused who kind of say, no, we didn't. We were just, you know, trying to take care that the law be faithfully executed. But now you have people from from both sides of the of the those meetings 
those interactions saying effectively the same thing. So, you know, presumably her testimony will be roughly consistent with what the people on the other side are going to be saying. And that's, I think, becomes powerful that you have people from the Trump team saying, yeah, he really did, or we really did on his behalf, or the enterprise really did the set of things that the people pressured are saying that it did. I do think that's a significant change. No, and I and I think that's right. And and you know, Fonnie Willis, I, I'm something I'm curious to ask you about, Ben, because when this indictment came out, everyone was kind of saying, you know, she went too big, it's it's too sprawling, it's too too massive of a case. We were a little bit more reserved and kind of withholding judgment on whether or not, you know, uh, that that would turn out to be true. But I think in many ways, the events of the past few days have vindicated Fonnie Willis's charging strategy. So, I, I mean, do you agree with that or no? On a tentative basis, I absolutely agree with it. I, I do want to emphasize we were much more cautious than a lot of people. A lot of people said this is over, you know, she's being too sweeping, she's trying to shoot the moon. And I believe what what we said was uh, that whether this strategy is touched by prosecutorial genius or whether it is uh, a little bit shooting the moon, you you will have to see in the way cases play out. So, so far we have four cases that have played out and they've all played out the same way, which is that people have pled out to fairly generous terms and two people Ms. Powell and Mr. Chesbrough uh, tried to stare her down by invoking their uh, their speedy trial rights and forcing her to go to trial in uh, for a second time because she's going to have to do the same trial was going to have to do it again for the other you know seventeen uh, defendants you know force her to do that in a crazy short amount of time and she very calmly uh, said okay you know we'll go to trial in you know beginning of this week, it was supposed to be, uh, or November 7th, by the time you have a jury selected. And both of them blinked, which uh, whether that was because they were bluffing to begin with, or whether that was because uh, they were trying to run run out the speedy trial clock, we'll never know because they don't get to, they don't have to show their, their poker hands, but they folded. And they folded and they pled and they pled on terms that are uh, roughly the same as the one that Scott Hall pled out to, and now the ones that, and you know, as you rightly point out, Jenna Ellis is elevating, you know, she and Powell both, uh, you know, or Chesbro both get the felony plea. So she does seem to be inching up. Uh, um, I would say if you were trying, it is still too soon to evaluate this because she does have 15 more uh, defendants to go, but so far she's four for four, and two of them, anyway, or at least two, maybe three, are relatively significant defendants. I mean, Jenna Ellis was Rudy Giuliani's right hand woman, Sidney Powell was the Kraken lady, and Chesborough is one of the conceptual masterminds of, of the thing. So these are not small gets, even if they're no prison time you know, single misdemeanors or multiple, uh, single uh, felonies or multiple misdemeanors. 
Uh, I would say if you had to grade Fonnie Willis right now, you would give her an A now, but that's, you know, that's the thing about indicting 19 people is that, you know, you can get four convictions and still lose. Um, So I would say it's still premature to evaluate, but if I had asked you, where would we be October 24th, the day this indictment came down, what would you have said? I I don't think that I thought we would be here, but I but I also think the speedy trial demands change things a lot. You know, I but thought they didn't that change these... anything for Jenna Ellis, right? No, exactly. And I I well, they maybe did in terms of just speeding things up a little bit for Jenna Ellis. Maybe she would have waited until some of the dispositive, if there hadn't been these speedy trial demands. I don't know exactly where along the line we'd be, but these speedy trial demands, I think it's significant and and people need to kind of understand this, that, you know, a lot of those motions that McAfee decided uh, were pure questions of law about the RICO Act and its application. And of course, we don't know how they would have done on appeal because McAfee kind of made this blanket statement that he wasn't going to allow any interlocutory appeals. But by rejecting a lot of those things about, you know, the continuity question or the pecuniary gain question or a lot of these things that we talked about with Chesbro's team when they came on the podcast, I I do think that, you know, that put a lot of those defendants who were in the larger group with Trump who were scheduled to have this later trial that, that I think put them all in a position of really thinking like, oh man, you you know, maybe some of these things that I thought might work out, I'm already seeing that they're they're maybe not going to. Uh, They also then have this kind of psychological effect of, you know, I've seen Scott Hall plead out, I've seen Chesbro plead out, I've seen Powell plead out, and everyone wants to get in while the getting is good. Uh, So I, I do think that, you know, the speedy trial demand had a big effect And it's going to be very interesting to see, will we have a lull here where some of these other defendants just waited out or will some other one step forward now that Jenna Ellis has pleaded as well? Right. So let's talk about them less in terms of individuals, because I don't I think it's hard to hard to make individual calculations speculatively about what people are likely to do. But there are certain groups of defendants, right, presumably Fonnie Willis is not looking for a plea deal with Trump or Giuliani or Mark Meadows, who aren't presumably looking from one for her. Is that do you do you agree with that? That there's a group that are sort of like the targets of the indictment, most importantly Trump, and you know she's gonna; those people are gonna end up going to trial. Yeah, it seems like the people that that team uh, cares the most about uh, prosecuting uh, and maybe would be willing to drop everyone except these four would be Trump, Giuliani, Eastman and Meadows to an extent. I still kind of wonder, you know, I think that they probably would be happy to give Meadows a plea deal, depending on how good it is for them, how mutually beneficial it is for them. But you know, to be determined. Um, But yeah, I think that, and even if they got down to just Giuliani and Trump, I think that 
uh, that would they would be fine with that. All right. So that takes us from 15. If we lop off those four and say those are those are the really big fish, don't look for a short term plea deal with them, though anything's possible. Uh, now you're down to 11. How would you group those? I mean, you got your remaining Coffee County defendants who are, I think all of those are plausible plea material, right? Uh, yeah, I think so. But I, I also will say, I think at least in the sense of Kathy Latham and Misty Hampton, you know, you've already got two people from the Coffee County kind of area that have already pleaded out. And the case against Latham and Hampton seems very strong. Right. So, you know, while they they may be people who could get a plea deal, I'm 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 a little bit would be a little bit surprised because if they're not if they weren't willing to go ahead and plea out while the getting was good and while they knew that the state had a very strong case against them at least with respect to the Coffee County stuff, then I might be a little bit surprised to see them then, you know, later on plea, but we'll see. Yeah, I would I would take that the other direction, which is Fonnie Willis needs a plea from them less because she's already got Scott Hall and and uh, Sidney Powell. And so the price of it just went up. But I, exactly. I still think if you're them paying for a four to six month trial, sitting there next to Donald Trump and getting a RICO conviction, I don't see how you afford either financially or in terms of risk to go to trial with that. And so I would still look for look for that group to have a serious uh, come to Jesus moment with their lawyers. And, and at some point between now and when the thing goes to trial, I would look for them to plead. Who else are we talking about here? Like, what are the, what, what are the other, you've got the political operative types. What other groups are there? Yeah, so you've got the kind of the local so so you've got like these like local campaign or lawyer types. So it's like people who were working on behalf of the Trump campaign working on these post-election efforts in Georgia. So that's people like Ray Smith, who's an attorney. You've got Bob Cheely. Um, you know, those folks who maybe a lot of people don't know about, but were a part of these efforts, you know, uh, in terms of the making the statements in front of the legislature. Right. Bob Cheely is also alleged to have been involved in the harassment campaign against Ruby Freeman. And on that note, you've got the group of defendants, which this is an area I'm keeping my eye on because it is one of the areas of the RICO conspiracy of these little subplots that Fonnie Willis has not secured a plea from anyone. And that is the harassment campaign and, and intimidation campaign against uh, Georgia election workers. So that's people like Trevion Cuddy, Stephen Lee, Harrison Floyd, those folks, which 
you know, it may be that for some of them, there are reasons why they wouldn't plea out because, for example, in Harrison Floyd's case, he seems like he's very much a true believer. He's been very outspoken about uh, thinking that he's being, you know, politically prosecuted and and he's kind of had a whole brand that has gone with, you know, being prosecuted by Fonnie Willis's office. Yeah, but but still, I'm watching that group of defendants to see because it seems like Fonnie Willis is going to want to get someone in each of these little subplots that that would plead out. Uh, in terms of other groups of folks, um, you know, we've got the people like Mike Roman and um, Jeffrey Clark, who were you know very connected to the Trump uh, administration or the campaign. Mike Roman is more of a campaign operative. Jeffrey Clark, it you know of course was the DOJ official who at one point uh, Trump toyed with appointing uh, to be acting attorney. He did appoint him for for like or, a half a day a or something. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I would just say I think Clark is more in the Eastman category of somebody yes. who, you know, and if you think about like the question of what Georgia and Fulton County's equities are in prosecuting an individual, you know, some of these people like Sidney Powell have a very attenuated connection to anything that, you know, bad that happened in Fulton County. And, you know, but Jeffrey Clark, the, the major thing he wanted to do was send a letter to Georgia, to the state of Georgia, saying falsely that there were grave concerns, that the Justice Department had grave concerns about the integrity of Georgia's election. And so if you're a Georgia law enforcement official like Fonnie Willis, like I do think there's an interest in Jeffrey Clark that is, you know, a little bit different from sort of just the generic, I mean, this guy actually tried to use the Justice Department to use the federal government to, on the basis of false pretenses, interfere with Georgia elections. He's a little bit closer, I think, to the kind of molten core of the why is Fulton County interested in this question than, for example, Jenna Ellis is, or than Sidney Powell is, or uh, even Ken Chesbrough. Yeah. And I, and I also will say, I think both Clark and Eastman, if we're putting them in the same bucket, I would be surprised if either of them pleaded out because they're both, they both seem to be true believers. Like Jeffrey Clark's attorney was in federal court when, during the removal proceedings, basically kind of making an argument that the 2020 election was stolen. Eastman has been having these bar proceedings in California that has been centered around him basically proving that, you know, the 2020 election was stolen. So I I really would be surprised to see the two of them plead out because of maybe some of their uh, ideological or or personal beliefs that that maybe would go against all the other incentives that that would usually compel someone to plead. So if you had to divide the 15, it's 15, right? Remaining defendants into the likely pleas, unlikely pleas, it's kind of like 10 to five, right? So you've got like five people whose whole existences at this point are 
is wrapped up in the Trump martyrdom, you know, and you've got 10 or 11 who may be more in the what's the best deal I can cut for myself department. Yeah, I would also add to the the kind of maybe group of people who are not quite, you know, as connected as Eastman and Clark were to the Trump White House, but also have these more of political or ideological beliefs. David Schaefer, who, of course, was the former chairman, uh, one of the fake electors, he is someone who I think I would be very surprised to see him plea out because of, you know, his political views. And then this one is a little bit more, I'm not sure, I'm on the fence about what he might do, but Sean Still, who is a sitting state senator in Georgia, um, and also, again, one of the one of the fake electors, and, you know, they both, along with Kathy Latham, are going through this removal proceeding. They've appealed to the 11th Circuit. I don't think that it has any chance of going anywhere. But at the same time, you know, it seems like they are kind of uh, waiting out the removal stuff uh, before maybe they make any deals or, or make any other moves. Um, but especially Schaefer, uh he is someone who I, again, would just be a little bit surprised to see make a deal. We are going to leave it there. Having predicted nine to 11 more, please. Although the time is unclear, the time frame for those and five to six people going to trial. Anna Bauer, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution, our audio engineer. This episode was me. Any errors you hear, any bad sound, all my fault. You are the Lawfare Podcast's big support mechanism. So I want you to go right now and become a material supporter of Lawfare. You can do that at lawfaremedia.org slash support. The Lawfare Podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.